0: podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature.
1: I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, and the author of the novel Love Marriage. What kind of student were you? I bet you
0: were, were you, uh, you know, kind of nerdy? Whatever, I bet you were a nerd. Come on, <laughs> this is a nerdy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if <laughs> I really wasn't a nerd, I, I'm a nerd now. I want to be a nerd. That's the way to live.
1: All right, then we are nerds. We were nerds. We're in this together. We, America, in the middle of reckoning with collective nerdery, or <laughs> also perhaps collective responsibility and collective happiness. And and guess what? This week's episode is about the fact that socialism is back in. Trending, as my kid says. So we're going to talk this week about the return of socialism. Um, and of course, given the news, we didn't want to talk about that without talking about recent teacher strikes and walkouts, which have surprised a lot of people, but probably not anyone who has ever been a teacher. We're
0: thrilled to have Dana Goldstein with us today to talk about her recent reporting on the teacher strikes and walkouts. Dana is a reporter for The New York Times and the author of The New York Times bestselling book, The Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession. She has also written for Slate, The Marshall Project, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and many others. Dana, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I suspect
1: a lot of our listeners, who we think are mostly writers, are also teachers in some regard. And you've been writing about the teacher walkouts and strikes in Arizona, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and West Virginia.
2: Can you tell us where things stand now for our listeners who haven't been following this issue? Sure. So what's going on right now is I'm preparing to go next week to North Carolina, which will be the sixth state this year, to have widespread teacher protests, rallies, walkouts, or strikes. Um, These are generally happening in states that are Republican dominated, although that's not the case in Colorado. There were some more limited walkouts there, and um, that's more of a purple state. But in the rest of these states, the legislatures are uh, largely conservative. And I think one common thread is that they cut education funds. Spending when the recession hit. And for many of these days, they haven't sort of replenished the coffers. And now teachers are quite angry that their pay is stagnant. So they're asking for higher salaries. But it has gone far beyond that at this point in the movement. The demands have been getting bigger and bigger since this launched earlier earlier this year in West Virginia. And now teachers are making a broader movement, not just about their own salaries, but about funding for education and for kids' needs and for the buildings and for textbooks and supplies and all sorts of other stuff. And in Arizona, which was the last state to walk out, and also now in North Carolina, there's an even bigger ask, which is sort of an end to policies of corporate tax cuts and end to income tax cuts for the wealthy. Those teachers in West Virginia walked away with a $2,000 raise and declared victory. There was no additional funding for the schools themselves in that deal, and there were no new taxes. Now, as the movement went on to Oklahoma, the ask got bigger and bigger teachers got a six thousand dollar raise just from threatening to strike they hadn't even gone on strike yet they also wanted you know a lot more money for schools and they were pushing some policies that would have you know raised taxes on the wealthy so that in oklahoma it had become a much bigger movement and then in arizona there was this even bigger ask which was not just a raise for us not just a raise for the support staff that work in the schools, not just new money for schools, but no more tax cuts, no more corporate tax cuts, no more income tax cuts um, until our education funding in the state of Arizona reaches the national average. Now, those demands were not met, but I think it's it's an indication of how much more ambitious this movement is getting, and it's, it's becoming broader than just about teacher pay, which is how it started out.
1: As I was researching this, I was thinking about you know that ancient saying, it would be a great day when our schools get all the money we need and the Air Force has to hold a book sale to buy a bomber. And I actually Googled that phrase and sort of was trying to think of how, how old is that? Um, that sort of, I guess it's pre-meme, but um, it's the kind of thing that gets posted all the time. And during the coverage of this, what I've repeatedly seen popping up on social media has been visuals of damaged chairs and shabby textbooks and kind of wrecked classrooms. I'm curious about what teachers have shown you as they're trying to tell you their story of, of what they're asking for.
2: Yeah, so we had a piece that we did here at the Times with our Reader Center, which are a group of writers and editors here that interact with our audience and kind of crowdsource. Uh, content from them and we did a piece where we were asking teachers to send us their photos of, of expressions of the need in their communities and we got thousands of responses and we pulled some of the most compelling ones into an article and this was one of our most highly trafficked <laughs> articles in the new york times the last couple months and um, some of the things that we saw were just like some of what you'd expect you know paint peeling on the walls of classrooms, really old textbooks that were held together with duct tape. But then also the ingenuity that teachers showed. Um, An art teacher had taken kind of dried out, desiccated markers and stuck them in water so that what was left of the ink kind of leached out. And this was going to be watercolors for her students because she could not afford afford to have paint for them. So, I mean, I think this really resonated with people.
0: I mean, you know, my son goes to public school here in Kansas City, you know, and it's a really nice school. Uh, They do a lot of private fundraising. So it is better off than many schools. And it's a charter school. It's a French immersion school. So there's many, many things that you know, mitigate the funding issue for him and for his, his classmates. And I love the school. I think it's great. But, you know, I ask him stuff all the time and he says, well, we can't afford that. We're, you know, we don't have money for that. He He's aware of funding. Like they don't have a lunchroom, you know, like they just right. eat in the classroom. Um, you know, if he comes home and, and my other son, uh, uh, you know, came home all with his knees all busted up because he plays soccer all the time on a on pavement, you know, and he's like, "Couldn't we have some grass somewhere?" And you know, mm. his his older brother's like, "No, we can't afford that. That's like, we're not going to be able to afford that."
2: No, I I think that is interesting because one of the things I've been talking about with my editors is, you know, we always have these conversations as we cover this exciting national story. Why these states? And certainly, these states spend less than average. They may be spending you know six or seven thousand dollars per student per year, as opposed to say New York City, where we could be spending over twenty thousand dollars per child. But what I, what I keep explaining, you know, to my editors, and I hope to our readers as well, is I never visit a public school where they say they have enough money. Even when they have $20,000 per pupil, they are still scrimping and, and going out to attract private donations to be able to offer what they want to offer students. So, you know... These issues of school funding are nationwide, even though where we're seeing this movement crop up, um, are places that are sort of below the median for what could be expected in the United States. And I think that's what shocks the conscience with seeing these kinds of photos, right, is we don't think that our kids in this country should be studying from textbooks that are held together with duct tape that say that Barack Obama is a senator from Illinois.
1: (laughs) God. I mean, going back to what you were saying about people putting their own money into schools, um, I went to a public school that was um, in a district that was really well off. And I mean, sort of later realizing how that had sort of promoted inequality, the fact that I had a set of parents and our community had a set of parents who had those resources to pour in and didn't hesitate to do it. So I can't help but wonder how that's playing into these situations, too. I mean, of course, one doesn't want people affiliated with public schools to have to put their own money in or to feel pressure to do that. And of course, I mean, sometimes at colleges and universities, we're doing that, too. And so, I mean, that that feeling, that pattern is very familiar to me.
2: This story is about teachers in a certain cluster of states that have a certain political uh dynamic um speaking out and protesting but i think it would be a mistake to say like this is about red states and conservative politics and it is about that but it is uh, this is a nationwide story of disparities and what our kids have access to depending on where they live and who their parents are
0: well, speaking of that, I mean, in in your book, Teacher War, the Teacher Wars, you wrote about the history of teaching in the in the United States. I, I did you see this wave of protests that we're talking about coming? You know, I mean, and, and how does how does this fit into the history that you wrote about?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I'm covering as a reporter right now feels like my book come to life, which (laughs) is a strange experience to have four years after the book was published. And I wish that I could tell you that I had anticipated this, But when I was on maternity leave two months ago, I did not expect to come back to a story of a wave of teacher strikes across America. (laughs) I I mean, I definitely did not think that was going to be one of the big national news stories of 2018. So I was surprised. um, But I don't I think maybe I shouldn't have been because everywhere I've gone for the past five years, you know, as an education writer, I've been hearing how angry teachers are. They're angry about all sorts of things. They're angry about low pay and lack of funding for their students. And they're angry about Betsy DeVos. And they're also just angry that everything we've been talking about in education predominantly for the past 20 years in educational reform – has been about stuff like raising kids standardized test scores and holding teachers accountable and making it easier to fire bad teachers. And I think what teachers are saying, what many teachers are saying, are you have missed the boat. The policymakers and the education reformers and the media and everyone has missed the main story, which is our schools are starving for just basic resources like textbooks, um, other Supplies. These are schools, sometimes the roof needs to be replaced, the heating system, the air conditioning. And I think what teachers are saying is listen to us, listen to our day to day lived experience of working in this sector and look to us for setting the agenda for education. In listening to you
1: talk about um, the way that just like the physical plant of public public education in the United States is is has not been supported and maintained I can't help but think of the subways, right? Which is, in some ways, actually the same. It's the same thing, right? In in New York, Boston, DC, um, this story of infrastructure failing, sort of really basic public services things that we expect our taxes to take care of, like the maintenance of schools, that the school should have a roof, the subway track should be cleaned so that there aren't trash fires, um, the train should be updated, et cetera. Like, I just, it, that's an interesting, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that before, but I mean, it seems like in some ways um, maybe an even larger problem of of mm-hmm. just the maintenance of basic services.
2: I think that's exactly right. And that's especially true in the states where teachers are walking out because, They've pursued uh, such fiscal austerity in those states that the basic dollars aren't there for, for some of this basic upkeep that you're mentioning. And another thing that's maybe a bit analogous to the public transit example is there's also a conversation about, like, well, are public schools the best method for delivering education? And lots of people, you know, you mentioned that your son is at a charter school. Lots of people are choosing charter schools or are using private school vouchers. And these have been um, the types of policies that have had the most energy over the past 10, 20 years. And sometimes that comes at the expense of paying attention to what's going on in the traditional neighborhood public schools. And we see that in transit. You know, in New York City, where I live, we have Uber, you know, constantly lobbying to increase the size of its fleet um, and the support that they get from policymakers while our public transit system is, is starving and hungry. So, you know, there are... There's a lot to be said for school choice, but certainly when it leads to declining student populations in the traditional schools, there's a there's a funding aspect there that's really real. And I heard a lot about this in Arizona. You know, if 100 students from your school leave to go to their charter school, they're going to be taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding with them. And what happens next is that you have much less money to repair it. So these are some of the things and tensions that are happening in many of these states.
0: I mean, charter schools, the other thing that is interesting about that, and this is, it's such a controversial issue here in Kansas City, um, you know, they were a big uh, item that the Obama administration were, in, were was in favor of, as I recall. Did the teachers blame charter schools like specifically as being one of the main reasons they're having funding problems, or are they looking at funding from the state level mostly?
2: Well, some of them do blame charter schools, and I'm not here to say whether that's fair or not. But what I will tell you is that when you visit a school in Arizona, a traditional neighborhood public school that has seen an exodus of students to charter schools, they do blame charter schools for some of their funding problems because those kids took their state dollars with them when they left the public school. Right. Those state dollars travel with the child. Um, in their backpack, as the education reform people like to say, you know, the kids carrying the funding with them. And, you know, that might be fine because you can maybe have one fewer, one less teacher. So you might be able to save some money when your student population goes down. But again, that doesn't take away the need to repair the roof on the building or or replace the air conditioning system. You still have to, you still have these expenses. uh, And then you have less money to deal with them. So for some teachers charter schools are part of the
0: problem it's interesting to me they just that that part it feels like it's a little bit buried in the sense that it hasn't come up in that i haven't seen it unless you i'm missing something come up in their actual demands right i haven't seen yeah, it, you know them say like well part of our platform is we want to fix this we, we don't we don't want charter schools anymore we want to change the rules on that or that needs to be adjusted in some way
2: Yeah, it's something I hear a lot from rank and file teachers, but you're definitely right that it hasn't been part of the formal demands. And I think part of it is that, you know, a lot of the big organizers of these protests would like charter school teachers to be part of it. And certainly there are some ch Yeah, certainly in Arizona, there were some, not a lot, but there were some charter school teachers that participated. I mean, they get paid with those same state dollars that traditional teachers get paid with. So there's a lot of, there could be a lot of shared um, solidarity between charter and public school teachers, but there's also some points of tension.
1: So does all of what's going on now, does this bring any other particular teacher strikes to mind? You wrote about a lot of rich history in your book.
2: Yeah, I mean, what this really brings to mind to me is actually the very beginnings of the teacher union movement and the late 19th century teachers unions in their modern form launched in 1897 in Chicago. And a huge part of that movement was just a total rebellion against the idea of corporate tax cuts. At that time, teachers that were about 97 percent female in Chicago were absolutely outraged that the schools were starved for basic dollars when companies were paying such low taxes in Chicago and they actually targeted com- specific companies like the Chicago Tribune the newspaper at the time so uh, Wait, what year the, was this again it was 1897 the same exact issue uh, yeah, the same so exact issue. Yes, low corporate taxes. So <laughs> Margaret Haley, who is the visionary of the teachers union movement in the late nineteenth century, um, trying to raise corporate taxes, that was what she was trying to do. So I have just been thinking about that so much because we did of course see a lot of teacher union organizing in the sixties and seventies in this country, but what is happening right now reminds me much more of what was happening at the turn of the century.
1: It would be amazing to hear you read a little bit from the book, maybe something about teacher protest history.
2: So I'm going to be reading from um, the chapter of my book that takes place at the turn of the 20th century. And this is describing some of the shocking things that the very first teachers union did, and it was called the Chicago Teachers Federation. Union teachers triggered a moral panic among the media establishment in 1905 when they marched in solidarity with 35,000 Teamsters picketing for the right to close shops, where employment is available only to union members. The Teamster strike targeted high-profile department stores like Marshall Field, Sears, and Montgomery Ward. It lasted an incredible 105 days, during which 415 people were injured and 21 killed. Teamsters took control of city streets in order to block the passage of replacement truckers, parting merchandise to and from downtown businesses. Some of those replacement workers were Black, and a few were savagely beaten. Liberal magazines like Harper's Weekly and The Nation compared the strike to the terror of Revolutionary France and the Teamsters to a mob. For the upper middle class, even those with liberal politics, it was utterly confounding that lady teachers would want to affiliate with such a movement. The Chicago Tribune worried that in their alliance with sometimes violent Teamsters, Federation members were teaching 240,000 Chicago children sedition, revolt against constitutional authority, disrespect for the law, and subversion of private and public rights. A more even-keeled and prescient critique of early teacher union activism came from a writer named David Swingwicker. In a national reform journal, he argued that by opposing the superintendent's plan to evaluate teachers on performance... Unionists were denying the fact that teachers are not born and they are made. So I think I like that passage because it gets at some of what's exciting about teacher unionism and then also some of what's really complicated about it. <laughs> um,
0: how, does, how, does it you know, how does that compare to like, I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about what it's like on the ground during these uh, during these protests when you say you're on a, at a picket line or something like that. Um, Obviously, people aren't getting killed, uh, as you described, but what's it like?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, what we see today is their teachers are wearing red. The movement is calling itself Red for Ed, so Red for Education. And they have signs, and a lot of the signs are really funny. I'm I'm not thinking of any of the um, quips right now, but there's plenty of slideshows on the internet you can click through. But um, usually there's just thousands of them and they are marching to their state capitol and they're going inside of the capitals and meeting with legislators and having rallies outside. There's lots of parents and kids that are participating in this. A lot of the states have done these um, walk-in or walk-out protests in preparation for the striking days. So they would walk into school wearing their red shirts and often be accompanied by parents that support them, or they would walk out of school you know, wearing their red shirts and maybe parents and students who support them would gather at the school doors and applaud the teachers as they walk out. So that's some of what I've seen. And I think what's unusual, too, and I've written this uh, for The Times, is a lot of principals and superintendents support this movement. As I've been going across the country, I see principals, uh, especially like wearing the red T-shirts and participating in these protests, which is bizarre in a way because they're the managers and the teachers are the workers. But what is happening is that they're uniting together to protest the state policymakers and the politicians.
1: Wow. Um, I'm just thinking about also what you read in teaching students uh, subversion of public and private rights. I can't help but think also of, um, you know, recently this, this huge wave of student protests that we've seen too and yeah. the support from teachers and in some cases principals. And then also, um, yeah, I mean, um, that, that that is happening sort of in parallel.
2: Definitely. And the teachers are inspired by the kids. I mean, a lot of them are telling me, like, I was inspired by the gun walk out. And if my teenage students can do something like that, then I can do something, too, to speak up. So there's a lot going on. And I think schools right now are a site of protest generally. I mean, whether it's anti, um, anti-Trump protests, you know, protecting Latino students from deportation, The gun issue there's a lot going on at schools and we also see you know some stuff in higher education as well so i think it's an interesting kind of story that's emerging in 2018 as we head toward the midterm elections
0: all i remember doing in school was trying to get a fake id (laughs) (laughs)
1: um so you're heading soon on another trip and um We're anticipating, you've reported that you're anticipating walkouts in North Carolina. What do you expect to see there in comparison to, can you talk a little bit more about what you expect to see in comparison to other states there?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to turn into a multi-day or multi-week walk out of North Carolina. They have declared that they will walk out of school on the first day of the legislative session. So I think they're trying to come out in force and ask the legislature for more money for teacher salary and for teacher, um, teacher salary and for student funding. And I think many of the issues are the same. Uh, Schools are having trouble recruiting and retaining teachers who have, like, 15 years experience of be making under $40,000 per year. One difference is that North Carolina does have a Democratic governor, so it's not just uniform Republican control. So I think that the teachers are hopeful that they have at least one advocate for this cause um, in a position of power. That said, I don't think the legislature in North Carolina, which is Republican-dominated, is going to provide these teachers with what they're asking for.
0: Well, I mean, that, that's the thing that I keep thinking about is like, well, it's OK, what's going to be the backlash on this? Because, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that the, uh, um, the state legislatures of these states are happy giving teachers more money. If they wanted to, they would have done it before without having there be massive strikes. But they've had to back down in this very public way. But they're still going to be in charge of those states. Won't they just kind of like, you know, s- s- wait until nobody's looking and then like, you know, cut the money again or, you know, make the union leaders pay in some way?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think that there is already a backlash brewing. In Oklahoma, they gave teachers a $6,000 raise in part by raising taxes on oil and gas wells. And the oil and gas industry is already uniting and organizing to put a ballot referendum up in November that would repeal that new tax. So definitely it's not over just because teachers have gone back to work and of course in the summertime schools are closed and it becomes a lot harder to organize around education issues so what my sources in the teacher movement have been saying is like we really need to get out and vote in november to make these gains more permanent and if people don't vote um then we're not going to be able to count on actually seeing this funding actually reach teachers and and students
0: you also published this story about uh uh, how how in certain places the teacher pays so low that uh, districts are recruiting uh, teachers from overseas I mean how yes. did you how did you find that story?
2: And- yeah, so that was a story that I was a little surprised by. After the economy improved from the Great Recession, it became a lot harder to hire teachers. There were just fewer Americans that were willing to work for the amount of pay on offer. And so what districts have done is that they have brought teachers over on J-1 visas, which is a temporary visa that's typically used for, like, camp counselors, or pairs. That type of worker. Huh. And right now there's thousands of teachers about three thousand per year coming with j one visas. And the top countries are the Philippines, which was the subject of my piece. Also mm-hmm. uh, Jamaica, China, India, so they're largely coming from the developing world. And these teachers can make up to ten times more here than they can at home. So that's why they're interested in coming here. But um, what was really surprising to me was that, you know, they pay over $10,000 to these private companies that are for-profit companies to help them find these jobs and process all the paperwork. So they are essentially paying for their jobs. And there was some negative attention on this back um, before the recession and even some court cases having to do with whether these workers were being abused, and there were different efforts put together to try to put a stop to the practice. And here we are 10 years later, and I find out that the trend is growing again. So the way I found out about it is I had just visited uh, this school district in Phoenix called the Pendergast School District, and I walked into a meeting with the superintendent thinking that I was just going to be interviewing her about why she supported the teacher movement. She had her hair dyed red because although she was a superintendent, she supported the, <laughs> the red for ed. That's the teacher movement.
0: I love um, this repurposing told- of red. It's taking it away from the <laughs> conservatives and yeah. giving it to the teacher movement. It's kind of nice.
2: Yeah, so she, this superintendent, she was really dynamic. Her name was um, Lily DeBlue. And she said to me, I am desperate for money. And I started asking her, you know, why? What are some of the things that you've had to do because you're so desperate? And she started listing a whole number of ways that she had attracted private donations to her district. And she was really dynamic. She had done some really hard work. And then she kind of mentioned as a side note that she had hired 50 teachers from other countries. And right away I was like, oh my gosh, I circled it in my notebook and underlined it so I wouldn't forget because I I know that districts have to recruit out of state. Like Arizona may go to New York City to recruit because we graduate a lot of teachers here and they don't have as many down there. But I had never heard of this before, you know, that she was bringing to her small district. (laughs) This is a small school district in Arizona. She had 50 Filipino teachers. These Developing world teachers are actually shouldering the costs of recruitment and retention of American teachers. They're paying out of their own pockets the money that we should probably be spending. (laughs) The reaction to the piece I wrote on the Filipino teachers and the J-1 visa was really interesting. I got a lot of emails from anti-immigrant Uh, Conservatives.
1: That would have been my guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, the folks saying, like, wow, good job revealing, you know, this travesty. And, you know, I would say, like, you know, thanks for writing. Like, do you think that taxes should be higher to, you know, be able to pay teachers more? And a lot of them actually said yes. And they, Said that this was why they had voted for Trump I mean this is getting into a much bigger conversation but <laughs> this is kind of the Steve, this is sort of the Steve Bannon crowd <laughs> and I there is a constituency out there that would like to you know pay higher wages for these types of jobs and invest more Of course um, another way to think about it would be that wouldn't it be great if the Filipino teachers had a path to citizenship and a lot of them were living very austerely. Like, you know, maybe five roommates in one apartment. So they know that if they were to have like a family, like a spouse and children in the U.S., they wouldn't be able they wouldn't be happy with this salary. It's only because they're sending the salary back to a developing world economy that it's enough.
1: Isn't it right that sort of in comparison to other countries, the United States teacher pay in comparison to cost of living is pretty low?
2: So, I mean, if you compare us to a developing world country, we have course pair teachers a lot more. So that's why it would make sense for an Indian or Chinese or, you know, Filipino teacher to come here. I think what's very different is You know, if you look at, say, Scandinavia or European country, we don't actually look that bad just on raw salary. I think, particularly in Asian countries, currently there is a lot more respect for teachers in many ways than we have here in the U.S. I think when I talk to educators in Western Europe, they feel that over time the profession has become less respected there, similar on a similar trend line as what American Mm -hmm. teachers complain about. There's definitely a, a link between the low pay that teachers get and the fact that they're predominantly women, I mean, in the 19th century, policymakers made a conscious effort to recruit women to do the job so that they could get away with paying them less. So this is the history of the profession. It's not a natural state of being that teachers are women. It's engineered to be a female profession by policymakers in order to save money and, and save tax dollars.
0: How is this going to affect the midterm elections? What And, and the Democrats are traditionally a party that is, that is connected to unions. But many of these protests w- were actually in rebellion uh, uh, against union leadership or sort of ahead of union leadership.
2: My reporting with the Democratic National Committee and Democrats in these states, they are just so excited to go out to these rallies and register folks to vote at these rallies and to get out the vote using the energy that this Red for Ed movement has sparked. You know, that said, I think it's a lot um, easier said than done. One of the reasons why is because a lot of the teachers in these states um, are themselves Republicans traditionally, and they may have voted into office some of the same legislators and governors who want to cut funding for schools and cut funding for teacher salaries. So they need to kind of make a real uh, pitch to these to these teachers and parents that if you care about this one issue it's not enough to just mount a protest movement that will successfully push Republicans in a one-off way to support a single piece of legislation to raise teacher pay. Um, I think my interpretation is that this may be a movement that opens up a different type of Republicanism. I think traditionally if you even just go back to the 90s which was not very long ago there were definitely lots of Republicans across the country that it, you know, were accepting of and enthusiastic of more funding for public education. You know, the Tea Party movement that arose around 2010 had this austerity cut to the bone mindset, but that's not necessarily the natural state of the local or state-level Republican Party or even the National Republican Party when it comes to education. So... Maybe this is part of what Democrats hope will be a blue wave for the midterms, but maybe it's also the sort of beginnings of a movement to widen out again what it what it could mean to be a Republican or a conservative when it comes to education.
1: Dana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really wonderful to have you on the show.
2: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
1: Thanks,
0: Dana. And now I'm very pleased to welcome Thomas Frank, the author of Listen Liberal, the forthcoming collection Rendezvous with Oblivion. The Wrecking Crew, What's the Matter with Kansas, and a ton of other excellent books, all of which I have here on my shelf. Tom, welcome.
3: Whitney, it's nice to be here.
1: <laughs> Tom, we're really happy to have you on the show, primarily because you're the perfect writer to talk about progressivism and socialism in American literature, past and present, but also because I understand that you and Whitney have a regular holiday dinner with your families, so I want some dope on this guy. Yeah. He called me a nerd at the beginning of this podcast. This is very unfair. Everyone, this way. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, Whitney calling other people nerds. Uh, you know, I think I think he's earned that right. I think, oh, I no. think, Whitney, can, <laughs> I think Whitney can do that. Uh, okay, so I'll tell one Whitney story. Actually, probably I shouldn't tell any Whitney stories. Oh my oh really. god,
1: no. Tell all of them.
3: No, no, no. I'm just... I'm going to tell one, and I actually, I actually admire Whitney in all sorts of ways. No, he says, about, I actually
1: admire actually.
3: Whitney.
1: Because <laughs> you,
3: thought, you thought I was going to say something, because I'm going to do the opposite of what you thought I was going to do, which is say something mean. I'm going to say something that I think is really cool, that when I was like um, in my stupid high school, you know, worrying about the debate team and whatever, Whitney and his friends built a raft and floated down the Missouri River. I think that is awesome.
0: You I did? So proud of that. Yeah, it was fun. It was insane. I can't believe we got away with it. I don't think like, you can't imagine any parent. I like I wouldn't let my kids do it. It was
3: incredibly
0: dangerous. We brought wow. a case of beer, too. We were 16.
3: <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I think that is just like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so if if Whitney if Whitney calls me a nerd, I, you know, I accept that judgment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, lo- I am a nerd. That's the thing. But can we get down to business or anti-business? Tom, in What's the Matter with Kansas, which came out in 2004, you emphasize the Midwest's long-lost tradition of leftist radicalism. Uh, We've just been talking to Dana Goldstein about some pretty feisty teacher strikes in states like Oklahoma, West Virginia, Colorado, and Arizona. Is this a sign that there's some long-lost radicalism is coming back to the Midwest? Are there other signs? Bernie, Chapo Trap House, the
3: DSA? By the way, you know, Bernie did very well in Kansas. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, but uh, Bernie actually. Won, I mean, there's not that many Democrats in Kansas, so it probably wasn't all that hard. But Bernie Bernie won the uh, Kansas primary very convincingly, <laughs> as well as a number of other states in that area. So what I've always said about about Kansas, and I think you could say the same thing, uh, you know, to a certain degree about some of the other states around there, is that it has a populist tradition, and that tradition can go either way. Um, it can it can you know as as we see right now it's totally captured by the right uh, but th- th- there is a uh, you know there's a strong left wing flavor to populism and and you do, i mean look the teacher strike if you you look at this we haven't had a strike wave in since the 1970s in america and these are uh, you know statewide teacher strikes, very unusual thing. And they're happening all over the place. They're happening in red states. Uh, ha- they, we had one in Chicago a couple of years ago. And I think um, the, w- the way the situation is now, yes, that is going to, that is going to uh, keep rolling. I mean, we're about to start uh, summer vacation here. But after that's over, uh, if the situation is the same in the fall, I think you're going to see more of them. And I think you might even see this strike wave spread into other industries. Oklahoma back in the 30s was pretty radical. Um, You know, that's where Woody Guthrie was from. Yeah, and they had a lot of socialists there and that sort of thing. I remember even in the 1980s when I was a little Republican in (laughs) high school in high high school debate, and I you know I was a a real true believing Reaganite. You know, and uh, I remember we went to uh, my my debate partner and I went to a tournament in Oklahoma. It was kind of a big deal. We were going to go to a tournament in a, in a different state. And um, we were very concerned because Oklahoma, at the t- it's what today you would say a blue state, you know, but, uh, but we just thought uh, there's a lot of liberals in Oklahoma. We were very <laughs> concerned <laughs> about
1: the liberals we were going to have to deal with in Oklahoma, which is kind of amusing. Oh my god, that's amazing! I my I, I think I was also a little Reaganite um, from the ages of birth to eight. Um, Are you guys kidding me? Is that true? <laughs> I did not know that about either one of you. I well, I mean, I four. think also I was I was I was like six and seven and eight, but I think I sort of just thought like he was the president of America, and so I supported him. And then <laughs> <laughs> sort of beyond that, I was like, oh no, that was that was an error. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was pretty I was pretty little. He was my first he was my first president. Are well, you, I,
3: I'm sure I've told you about this before, Whitney, that I was a—I was a young conservative. I, that whole um, sort of. Um, you know, generations have defining moments, uh, historical events that, that, you know, for some it was World War II or the Great Depression or the, you know, stock market crash in 1929. For, uh, for me it was, and I think for a lot of people my age, it was the uh, Iran hostage crisis and the sort of fecklessness of Jimmy Carter contrasted with, you know, the man of strength, Donald Trump. And that that whole narrative- You, meant, you mean was, Ronald Reagan- i'm <laughs> uh, sorry that's right reagan but but Trump plays on this all right. the time and uh and has tried to make that into you know the contrast between himself and obama has he's tried to cast it as though it were the same thing uh anyhow it was a it was that was the narrative of the, of the early eighties now i I outgrew it very quickly by well, it's kind of a nature versus nurture so.
0: thing i mean you did you have talked to me about this i mean and you grew up in a neighborhood where you're practically required to be a Republican or you get kicked
3: out of the (laughs) neighborhood. that's right. Exactly.
1: Yep. So the Hillary-Bernie split has been endlessly litigated since the election, but your book from 2016, Listen, Liberal, starts out... Analyzing Bill Clinton's presidency and how his presidency set subsequent Democrats on a path away from progressive ideas. And I was really interested in a speech you quote him giving in 1993 on the subject of free trade. And he says, change is upon us. We can do nothing about that. And you say he was... Enshrining the opposite idea is the progressive creed, and was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you meant by that.
3: This yeah. is early in Clinton's presidency. I think he was talking about NAFTA. He was trying to sell. He was trying to make the sale. Listen, liberal, the book that you just mentioned is a. It's the story of uh, how the Democratic Party uh, changed, you know, in our in our lifetimes, from being uh, this party that was identified with organized labor and, you know, these very liberal causes to being something different you know the the sort of the the neoliberalism with a smile you know with a neoliberalism with a human face uh, and Bill Clinton is I mean the story goes back to the late 60s but Bill Clinton is really the uh, the transitional figure and that that particular quote that you just mentioned I think is it's one of the, the most telling moments in the book, the whole idea of, pro, of, of being on the left and being a progressive and you know, that sort of thing is that we can change the world. And what Bill Clinton was saying, he was using the word in a completely different way, and he liked the word change. He liked to use it. He uh, used it all the time. But change was something that was happening to us. It's um, sort of similar to Silicon
0: Valley talk, like saying, "like yep, exactly. be, we're going to be yep. disrupted." You know, your in, your industrial job is going to be disrupted, and there's nothing you can yeah.
3: do about it. Exactly. So that's but that's where it comes from. It's 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 it was technology talk, and the other the other source was this sort of the great fantasy of that period about globalization. You
2: know, mm-hmm. which is
3: the, the idea that trade deals are. Something that we can't affect, that they're just going to happen, and what you know it's it's God's invisible hand, basically um, having his way with us and what what's never mentioned in all this stuff is that trade deals are in fact very complicated. you know NAFTA, for example, is two thousand pages long. It's not written by God, you know it's uh, it's written by lobbyists. Clinton <laughs> sort of represents in retrospect like almost
0: everyone who's a remaining constituency in the Democratic Party, there are things that he did you know, that's, that are offensive. I mean, you know, his mass incarceration program, not yep. so great, bad yep. for the Me Too movement, was a sexual harasser, yep. also bad for yep. unions, you know, everything looking
3: back on that yeah. presidency, seems like a disaster now. Welfare reform, the yes. balanced budget, bank deregulation, you know, e- yes, every all of his great uh, moments and all of his great moments. And by when I say great, I mean, the ones that If you go back and read his fans, if you go back and read books by people that liked him and magazine articles that really – people that were – thought Bill Clinton was a great president, these are the things that they admired, NAFTA, bank deregulation, the balanced budget, mass incarceration, although they didn't call it that. They called it the crime bill of 1994, welfare reform, uh, telecom dereg, every single one of them with the possible exception of the balanced budget. Every single one of these was a disaster. So
0: this assertion that change is inevitable, you know, that Clinton was making and that you talk about in the book, meaning in economic terms, globalization, job losses, flattening wage growth, offshoring, yeah. free trade, industrial decay. It seems so obvious now that Trump spoke directly against that, you know. and It's also interesting to me that Obama cited change in his slogan when he was, when he was running for president.
3: Yeah. Right. Well, Ob- Obama hearkened back to the sort of older meaning, you know, the older meaning of the word, uh, you know, the, the change was something that we would make.
1: Yeah. I mean, at least, I mean, in Obama's case, it seems like so much of the change symbolically also had to do with race and identity, the idea that he even sort of could be president the changing demographics of the country. And it seems like so much of what Trump talks about is sort of subtly and, and sometimes unsubtly against that demographic inevitability and hopefully at least to the left that seems more that seems much more dangerous and will hopefully move people to action
3: by the way clinton talked about that a lot too uh you know he, uh, he was going to give us a cabinet that looked like america this was his uh this is his saying at the time um what you know he didn't mention is that they were all yeah, and they did. He did a good job with that, by the way. He, <laughs> they didn't think like America though. They looked like America, but they didn't think like America. Yeah. Well, that's so my, I
0: a, That's what frustrates me is why can't Democrats be right on issues of race and and you know gender, which they are, in my opinion, but also be right on issues of trade, which they are not. Uh, uh, main, I'm talking mainstream Democrats now. I mean, yeah. the progressive and socialist Democrats are much more in favor of. Uh uh, uh, uh uh you know unions and looking to yeah. raise wages and they're not going to measure the success of the party by the success of the stock market you know but that's not what established establishment democrats aren't good on that issue and i just don't know
3: why yeah, I, know. I can't do both oh Whitney, you need to read There's a book i there's a book i want i want you to read it's called listen liberal well, i have read that how, book <laughs> this is your thesis it's about I'm, how I'm this all change happened. how that how that happened but it by the way this is like this is one of the, the sort of uncanny natures of the Trump campaign: is that the, the Clintons uh, and the Democrats, more generally, made this big switch on issues of trade, uh, you know, on issues of of you know uh, the invisible hand and you know the inevitability of neoliberalism, or however you want to put it. They one of the reasons they were able to make that change is because the Republicans, like Ronald Reagan uh, and George Bush Sr. and even George Bush Jr., were also Rock solid, you know, free traders, and so they knew that nobody would question them. And what you know, one of those sort of mottos of Clinton uh, was, uh, you know, referring to uh, sort of constituents of the Democratic Party, like say, organized labor uh, or black voters. He would say they've got nowhere else to go. That was yeah. the logic. This is the logic for how you would get, you know, how you win elections. You you take the people on the left of the party, and those two groups. Used to define the left of the party, and you'd say, "Well, that you know, what are they going to do? Vote for Republicans." And uh, what's fascinating is that Trump found a way to reach out to at least one of those groups—the sort of you know white working class, the sort of embittered people who are embittered by all of this stuff—and uh, peeled them away from the Democrats. And that really is uh, Trump's. I mean. If Trump has anything that he's done that's triumphant, that's it. It's that one little trick. And anybody, well, I I hate to say this, you know, because I've written about this so much, so many times. the, The Democrats really, there's no excuse for them to not see this coming, you know. Here's Hillary Clinton with the most expensive presidential campaign of all time, the finest advisors, the best consultants in D.C. She's got Eric Schmidt advising her on her. You know Her online campaign, the micro-targeting and the big data and, and still can't see this coming. And that's just like – man, does that ever tell you everything you need to know about the society that we live in?
0: Well, that's what really rang home to me about the, the – the, the, when you talk about Democrats being a party that represents the managerial class now rather than the working class, um, that just felt true to me. You know, and and it's, you know, uh, the other thing you mentioned, Eric Schmidt, I mean, we've we've talked about Facebook and social media companies, which are generally thought of as liberal and which liberal politicians have allied themselves with. But I don't think those are liberal companies. And I don't think those companies, (laughs) as we've seen now, increasingly, the more we look into what happened with Facebook and, and and how they've sold data. You know, increasingly it seems like a bad place for liberals to be aligned with them. I mean, you know. I know, I know,
3: I know, Whitney. Because they're, look, these people can be uh, liberals personally. This is sort of typical of the, you know, the professional class liberals that I wrote about in Listen Liberals, that they can be, uh, as individuals, very good people, very tolerant, you know. you know they believe in uh, uh, you know they're they they're right they're right there with you on LGBTQ issues. You know they they're they're very anti-racist. You know they can be wonderful people, um, but all of their impulses are towards monopoly. You know, And this is not because they're bad people. I think, I'm sure I've never met Mark Zuckerberg, but I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. You remember how Barack Obama did these, these events with him? you know? And there's this kind of bromance between these two guys. And I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is an excellent uh, human being, but that doesn't change the way his company has behaved. And you know, we have to be able to separate those two things. The, the real tragedy of it is if you think, Donald Trump is going to do the right thing on Silicon Valley. You know, you're crazy. <laughs> the, the The Democrats had a chance. I mean, this is a you know, we had a good chance back in the during the Obama administration to set down the rules for how we were going to go forward, responsible rules for how we were going to deal with the. Um, the sort of monopolistic dreams of these people, and you know, and, and these monopolies, these are like unlike anything we've ever seen before in this country. They're beyond Standard Oil, you know. They're beyond the railroads in the nineteenth century, and we had a perfect opportunity uh, under a president who cared, an intelligent president, and and it, it just slipped through our fingers. And it, you know, I'm sorry, I can get I can get really unhappy. Yeah. Let's go. Let's move to something that's, that's well. Something I want to positive. <laughs>
1: I want to go back for a second to something that's slightly more negative, um, which is to say that I don't think that the Democrats are great on gender or race. And I don't want to let that pass because I don't think that that's I don't think that that's true at all. Um, and I think, Tom, what you said about, you know, yeah, sort of where else do, say, people of color or women have to go is so true. But also, I mean, if you look at I'm not convinced Mark Zuckerberg is a great person. Um, I was just and, I was just I was just trying to give it no, no, sure. out there. I don't, I've never met the guy. But I think also, I mean, all of these companies, all of these monopolies, right? all of the that sort of thing, that's also gendered and raced. and I think that to to let that pass would be um, without comment, I think would be would be a mistake. And I think that also, like when we look back at the Clinton administration, one one conversation I've had a fair amount recently has been people looking back at like sort of the Lewinsky situation and saying, you know, oh, at the time, I kind of thought um, that that was OK. And now looking back at my earlier position, I think that that was wrong. The factor that that we never thought of at the time is this was a workplace you know,
3: situation. She was yeah. an in, she was an intern, um, you know, which really makes it kind of ugly. It's very ugly.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, all right, so, Sugi. Yeah, and yes, your point is is definitely well taken. I guess when I talk about Democrats being "quote unquote" good on race, I mean at least in what they say, not necessarily <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, how I, they practice. I, I, by,
3: by the way, so this yeah. is I, this is one of the moments in Listen Liberal that I'm that I'm proudest of. It was one of the one, the moments where I was where I was writing it, and and what I was finding was shocking me. Even though what I was finding is not hidden, it's it's you know anybody with a computer can look it up in the moment i'm talking about is the, the um, 1994 crime bill uh which yes, led to that's a really good led idea. to the mass incarceration of a, basically a generation of black kids i mean it's the most awful thing it's one of it's just it's dreadful and i'm and i'm reading up on it but what what shocked me absolutely blew me away is when there was this critical moment in it. I think it came in uh, 1995. This critical moment in the the process of getting the crime bill enacted, where it was up to Bill Clinton whether he would give thumbs up or thumbs down on this change, mm-hmm. and uh, and he chose the option that that led to it, this had to do with the definition of uh, or the, the the sentencing that they would give to uh, people who use crack cocaine as opposed to powder cocaine. The it's like a hundred to one differential. Okay, and Clinton could have overturned that. Uh, with a uh, with a, a scratch of his pen and he chose not to and he let it go and that is what that's the moment that did it you know that's that's what 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 is wound up putting all those kids in jail and the the thing that got me is when i was doing the research on this and i realized that less than a week before that happened he let that happen less than a week before that he had given a speech deploring mass incarceration <laughs> And talking about how we, it was this, like South Africa and stuff like that. And this was a terrible thing and no country should right. be doing this. And then less than a week later, he lets this happen. And that's, you know, that, uh, uh, how is that, how is that possible? You know, and and how is that possible? Because
0: we, uh, not we, I mean, I guess, well, actually, you know, I mean, I I would be counted in that we because Democrats wanted to win so bad and wanted power so badly that they're willing to basically turn into what they imagined to be their enemies in order to get it. I think that happens all the time.
3: Welfare reform was the same thing. Yeah. I mean, welfare reform is one of the cruelest they what they did is they abolished the welfare program. This is a, one of the New Deal programs goes back to the 30s. And and we all know why they did it because uh, welfare for was you know fairly or unfairly was identified with blacks by that point in 1995, 1996. And uh and Clinton uh deleted it. And no, they didn't replace it with much of anything. They replaced it with a silly band-aid of a program that relies on states and states can spend the money however they want, you know. They, they replaced it with, with nothing. Clinton did that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, get, I get so frustrated when I talk about these things. All I, right I, 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 starts to fail me. I, it I'll... makes me so mad. Those two things, doing the research on those things because I remember them happening, but I don't remember the de- – I didn't remember the details. And going back and looking at it, it's just cruelty. It is just outright cruelty and it, 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 just to get reelected. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I talked no, no, no. too much, and, I, and, I, look, and I'm so bitter about it. We're we're mad
0: about these things too. That's why we had you on, Tom. <laughs> and this is this is what it's like at a family dinner around the holidays. By the way, Sugi, just in case you were curious, <laughs> I,
3: I'm so sorry. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to be like sound, spouting off like like the. I have this tendency to just to just run an ideological way. But the reason, look, you guys are writers. You guys study writers. You guys spend all your time with writers. Hey, I'm a writer. Let's talk about that. I like writing. (laughs) All right, good. So I was thinking about the
0: ways that progressivism and socialism have been depicted in American literature. They're like the usual suspects, Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, Sinclair Lewis's The Jungle, John Dos Passos's USA Trilogy. I had also thought of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, Langston Hughes, Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright, Chester Himes. They were all interested in the Communist Party at one point, though they later broke with it. my son suggested The Hunger Games,
3: um, but who am I missing? There's a character called uh, Edward Dahlberg. Oh, yeah. I had his book, had his book here. It was – anyhow, He's his a book – Kansas City he, guy. <clears throat> that's right. and his, his first novel was called Bottom Dogs, and it's considered the first, uh, pro, first stab at proletarian fiction, Bottom Dogs. It's about people absolutely at the bottom, and it's, a lot of it is set in Kansas City and there's another another local connection there was a guy called Jack Conroy i doubt you've uh, you remember this well i don't remember this guy i'm not old enough of course but he was out of a place called Moberly Missouri and he wrote one called he wrote a novel called the dispossessed also you mentioned the one by ursula le guin he wrote one called the dispossessed he wrote a bunch of other things he edited a magazine in this town of Moberly, Missouri. I guess it was a coal mining town. Anyhow, he was fairly well known at the time. He's completely forgotten today. The uh, But the, the there's also Nelson Algren, who started out as that kind of novelist and sort of changed over the years. I'm sure you've read The Man with the Golden Arm. So yeah. when I was in uh, Whitney, I, uh, I was in uh, uh, graduate school in Chicago, and I'm sure I told you this at the time. I used to collect these books and In particular, ones that had some relationship to Chicago, and there's a lot of them. If you go back and read uh, Richard Wright's uh, novel Native Son, it's set in the south side of Chicago, of course, and what people don't realize is that um, James T. Farrell, who is one of the sort of uh, classic writers in this genre, he wrote a trilogy called – about the, a character called Studs Lonigan, is also set in the same neighborhood <laughs> about 20 years previously. Uh, and the, 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 this neighborhood, by the way, is just a little bit um, to the south and to the west of Hyde Park, which is where I lived back in the 80s and 90s. And my state senator was a character called Barack Obama, which brings us right up to the
1: present. One way to think about the depiction of socialism is also to think about the way that it's depicted by conservative writers. And so... Um, I every every year when I used to teach on when I taught undergraduates more I would start class by asking you know what are people's favorite books and inevitably someone would say know the Fountainhead or Atlas. Oh Trump. yes yes. And this sort of um, romanticized view of capitalism which really took hold on a on a certain generation and um, possibly on their children and you know, that these sort of long screeds with, um, you know, 40-page speeches in the middle. And yet, it's, it's I mean, it's it's really just, it's awful writing. Um, It's really just terrible craft and often just really bad storytelling. And yet it's still, I mean, there was a remake of Atlas Shrugged, I mean, as a movie pretty recently. Maybe a couple of other things that I would think about, like as opposed to sort of books really putting forward like advocacy of socialism, just sort of like books depicting, say, um, rural people or like, say the black working class. Um, and I think like looking at, for example, like the work of Jasmine Ward is interesting in this context as sort of a successor to some of those other writers that you mentioned. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like I can't, I'd, i really like to escape talking about Rand, but I don't know that I think it's possible. You know, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged is a strike novel.
3: It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a classic – and so what I finally – after reading it and thinking about it for a while, I decided it's this genre from the 1930s stood on its head. It's a depression novel where the depression is not caused by Wall Street. Uh, the depression is caused by the government, caused by government regulation by a kind of Franklin Roosevelt, by, a new, by the New Deal. So the New Deal causes the depression, and the billionaires go on strike. Uh, And and the book ends with – like any good proletarian novel does – with this kind of apocalyptic strike, this end-of-the-world strike. But in this case, it's a strike of the the uh, the tycoon class, and it turns out that civilization can't survive without their genius and their, you know, it is absurd, right? But uh, it's it's all of these uh, tropes from the proletarian genre uh, stood on their head. But it's a it became a kind of fantasy during the Tea Party years that if you don't give. Uh, us exactly what we want. We will withdraw. We will withhold not our labor, but our capital. Uh, th- well, this is what too big to fail means, right? If you don't bail us out in exactly the way we want, uh, we are going to destroy your economy for you. Two things. One is I want to mention just quickly Vincent
0: O. Carter, who is a Kansas City writer who died in, in Bern overseas, but he wrote a great book set in Kansas City. that's not well known about called Such Sweet Thunder. It's about growing up in an African-American neighborhood in Kansas City in the pre-war, pre-World War II. But um, just throwing that in. But, you know, what I wonder is like, is literature in its focus on the individual and Sugi, I'm really curious to know what you think about this also. Um, is it somehow inherently more conservative the form of the novel because of the way it's written because it's about individual consciousnesses individual conscience also uh, instead of group you know the novel doesn't work well to depicting large groups you know and so is there a way in which fiction is like in in itself like sort of anti-progressive anti-union in a way that I think novelists don't like to think of themselves we all like to think of ourselves most of us as being very liberal
1: well I think that there are writers who are Specifically, trying to wrestle with this right now. I mean, of course, there's the large ensemble cast of individual characters that aims to make some sort of grand sociological statement. Um, there are also writers who have been writing, and it's true, probably more, I'm thinking more of people doing this in a short story way than doing it in the novel, but like, say, you know, Stephen Millhauser, who often writes about sort of. Um, like, small villages uh, where the town has sort of a strange, cohesive consciousness. Like, if you look at We Others, there's all of these stories where... Uh, Towns sort of come together and fracture in certain ways that have to do with the depiction of collectivity um, as a form, and then sort of breaking out individual characters from that. Or like Yi Yun Lee, who has that terrific story, Immortality, which is in the We. I mean, I actually, I, I think you probably remember. I mean, I was teaching political fiction this term, and I had a week where I was sort of like, we're going to put some We. Just it's going to be the the week of We on the syllabus. But um, yeah, I mean, I went to the short story more than I went to more than I went to novels, and I think that novels are probably capable of doing this but I think that we have to figure out how and I think that like this rise in sort of thinking about collective responsibility I mean even sort of thinking about stuff like say you know that the lynching memorial which is like a a gesture at Americans taking some sort of collective responsibility for history um you know, or taking down Confederate memorials, which is also, I mean, a gesture at sort of thinking about what we collectively think. Um, but I think it's interesting also, that you
0: move to architecture because I think architecture is a good way of sometimes showing collectivism or collective. I mean, it, you can create public space through architecture. You can do the opposite also. But I do feel like the novel is somehow I, – I think you're right that writers have to be aware of this. But I feel like the novel is somehow fundamentally, structurally – An individual enterprise that writers who, if they want to write about the collective, have to be aware of that
1: structural impediment. Do you agree with that? I think that they have to. I think that there are a lot of writers I know right now who are trying to figure out how to make it something that can contain collective ideas and thoughts. But
3: but that's a – this is – I'm not going to say too much on this because you guys are the are the experts. But th- this is a very 1930s conversation. Great. You know the the the, tr- to the idea of trying to depict the collective in a you know in a novel, trying to depict the movement of history in a novel. That was the the sort of the, the that was the big aesthetic challenge of the 1930s. And the guy who got closest, you mentioned him earlier. In my opinion, I mean, what do I know? The guy who got closest was Dos Passos. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you look at USA, where he has the four different narrative, uh, you know, mechanisms. Part of it is made up of uh, your, your standard um, novel, you know, narrative about with characters and told in the third person. Then he has a part that's stream of consciousness—that's his own story, the author's own story. He has a part that's biographies of famous people, and then, you know, he has uh, a part that's newspaper headlines, sort of uh, clipped up and thrown back together. And that was what he was trying to do.
1: If I was going to mention one more book in here, it would also be nonfiction, a book that I feel like students don't read anymore and, and which I shouldn't resign. Um, But Studs Terkel working, which I think I mean, there's yes. so much um, there's so much in that, so much respect for kind of different kinds of jobs that they're sort of in its form, um, the sort of inherent like capaciousness and generosity and letting people speak for themselves. And, and you've got a new collection of of your essays coming out in June. And I wonder if, um, you could talk to us about rendezvous with oblivion and and maybe read us a passage.
3: I will, but first I'm going to bring this full circle. So studs Turkle was a friend of mine back in the day.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Well, when I lived
3: in Chicago and, you know, uh, he was a, he was a great man and I'm really glad that you brought that up. I that, that, that would not have occurred to me. Um, so, Studs. His real name was Lewis. <laughs> you know why they called him Studs? Back no, in, he loved when he was young. He loved that novel, Studs Lonigan, that I referred to before. And he oh. used to carry it. He used to carry it around with him in his pocket. Oh. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> and so his friends started calling him Studs, and it stuck.
1: That is a great That's so story. endearing.
3: All right. So yes, I have a book of essays, Rendezvous with Oblivion. So the title is, of course, a play on one of Franklin Roosevelt's most famous sayings. He said that you know this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. It's a collection of essays of mine written over the last uh, decade. And this essay was about how Trump might get reelected, but also about how he might not. And this is the last part of the essay. I'm just going to read some of it. Uh, In 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt set down his vision of American political history in which two, as he put it, schools of political belief, liberals and conservatives, fought endlessly for primacy. Regardless of what it was called at any particular moment, he wrote, the liberal party believed in the wisdom and efficacy of the will of the great majority of the people as distinguished from the judgment of a small minority of either education or wealth. What Roosevelt did not foresee was a party system in which the divide fell not between the few and the many, but rather between the small minority of education and the small minority of wealth. How could he have known that his great majority would be split in two and offered a choice between enlightened technocrats on the one side and resentful billionaires on the other? Get that great majority back together, I think, and they'd be unstoppable. There's really only one set of successful politics for an age of inequality like this one, and it naturally favors the party of Roosevelt. Trump succeeded by pretending to be the heir of populists past, acting the role of a rough-hewn reformer who detested the powerful and cared about working-class people. Now it's the turn of Democrats to take it back from him. They may have to fire their consultants. They may have to stand up to their donors. They'll certainly have to find the courage to change, to dump the ideology of the 90s, the catechism of tech bank, and globe that everyone now knows is nothing but an excuse for an out-of-touch elite. But the time has come. History is calling. Tom,
0: thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure.
1: What a treat to have you with us. And we'll look forward to your essay collection. That was so good. Thanks for reading from it. And that's a wrap for episode 17 of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Thanks to Travis Workman for composing our theme music. You can subscribe to our show by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast tab. You can find previous episodes and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction and nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on our LitHub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at you're reading Atlas Shrugged, in which case we're not sure happy reading is possible.